growing in God's Word, and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. The guy in the white hat always has to win, but not just win. He has to get the girl, not just get the girl. They have to end up on some tropical island in the Caribbean and find a treasure chest full of money there. Happy endings. Everybody loves it when a story turns out good. But getting to the happy ending doesn't mean there aren't some bumps along the way. If you're sick or if you don't have enough money in your checking account or if you don't like your job or if you're not with the person that you want to be with, you need to check that out. You need to find out because that's not God's will for your life. What if I told you, would it shock you if I told you that may be exactly God's will for your life? I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. Today we come to the end of our series entitled Life, Love, Legacy, The Story of Ruth. If you've been with us throughout this series, you may remember that Pastor Clay has walked us through three love relationships, Naomi and Ruth, Boaz and Ruth, and God and us. As we conclude our series today, we're going to see how the love relationship between Boaz and Ruth moves forward in God's providence. She, in the providence of God, ends up in the field of a man named Boaz in search of grain, but she finds love. As Pastor Clay is going to explain, we're not only going to see the rest of the story, we're also going to see the best of the story. Now here's Pastor Clay with the final message from Life, Love, Legacy, the story of Ruth. Today we come to the end of a six-week series in the book of Ruth. It's a book of only four chapters, but there's a lot of stuff in there. If you've been with us with this, this series, I think you might agree with that. In the process of looking at the life of Ruth, we've learned some things about life, about love, as a result of watching the story unfold as Ruth experiences hardships and heartaches and then hope begins to emerge as she, in the providence of God, ends up in the field of a man named Boaz in search of grain, but she finds love growing there. If you've been with us in the story, you've probably seen this progression uh, throughout the weeks. When we left the story last week, Ruth had just stated, probably rather boldly, had just stated through this beautiful custom of laying at the feet of Boaz... You can go back and listen to that message if you're thinking, I don't know what's going on here. Uh, Laying at the feet of Boaz and then asking Boaz to put his covering over her and be be her kinsman redeemer. Now, uh, I've talked about that custom, the custom of the kinsman redeemer. I've talked about that, uh, tried to explain that at least a couple of different times in this series. So I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail, but... The custom of the kinsman redeemer allowed for, in the cases where a family, a Jewish family, uh, if they fell on hard times economically, uh, difficulty, whatever the case might be, that um, a family member 
could buy the land that they had been given when the land, when they all came, when all the families came into the land, and God gave them the promised land, and it was divided up, that a family member could come to their aid by, by redeeming the land which they had either lost or were going to lose, and thereby they could bring some, some economic relief uh, to this family. It also ensured the fact, and I've said this, but it also ensured the fact that the land stayed in the hands of the family that it was originally given to. It was still within that family scope. So that was the role of the kinsman redeemer, to come along and buy back what the family had lost or was going to lose. In this case, however, the kinsman redeemer custom was also connected to a young woman, Ruth, who was a widow and had no children. She was, so to speak, connected to the land. She was part of that family that had lost the land. And so, in this case, the widow, whoever the kinsman redeemer was, they had to marry the widow that had no descendants, that had no children, in order to provide for her, protect her, and uh, ensure that the, that the deceased line, so to speak, would, would live on. That was part of the custom. That was also known a, a, as a leveret marriage. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, that was another custom. So those two customs were kind of coming together in this case because the land also had a, a woman who was a widow and did not have any children. So um, Ruth... In essence, says to Boaz, you can go back and listen to that message, or you can read the book, obviously, for yourself. She says to Boaz that night, when she says, place your covering over me, she says, I'm paraphrasing, but she basically says, I'm choosing you. I want you to be my kinsman redeemer, a.k.a. I want to marry you. That's what I want. Now, the good news is, Boaz wants the same thing. It's pretty clear from the story as you read it. Boaz definitely has feelings for uh, Ruth. He wants to, a relationship with her. And so I, it appears, and I think you just read it as you read there, that Boaz is thrilled when Ruth approaches him about this. In other words, Ruth doesn't have to say it twice. She doesn't have to ask twice. Ruth, uh, Boaz makes it clear, yes, I, yeah. <laughs> That's the good news. The bad news is there is a relative closer in relation to Naomi and therefore Ruth than Boaz. And the law, the Jewish law, clearly stated that the closest relative, the closest male relative had the right and the responsibility to redeem the family and thereby, in this case, also Mary, Ruth. That's where we left the story last week. Now let's look at the rest of the story. Ruth chapter 4, beginning this morning in verse 1. It's the rest of the story. Now Boaz, Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. By the way, before I read this, I should say this, because I just think this is such a beautiful verse. We left the story last week. It ends up with Naomi. Ruth goes home, and she says, here's what happened. Boaz says, yeah, I want you, but, you know, there's a closer relative, all that kind of stuff. 
Ruth goes home, tells Naomi that, and so chapter 3 closes with what I believe is a beautiful uh, statement by Naomi because it expresses both Ruth's, you know, desire for this and Boaz's desire for this. When, when Naomi says, then she said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Now, the rest of the story. Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he, meaning Boaz, took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he, Boaz, said to the closest relative, Naomi who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. They weren't literally physical brothers, but it's just a way of saying our our kinsmen. Verse 4, So I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know. For there's no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he, meaning the closest relative, said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed a sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. It was like uh, signing the contract or... Notary's seal. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Melon, their sons. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of Melon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. All the people who are in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrata and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may His name become famous in Israel. May He also be to you a restorer of your life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to Him.
What a great story, huh? As the story continues to unfold, Boaz goes straight to the city gates. Now, the city gates in those days were basically like the courthouse of our days. It's where business was conducted. It's where community decisions were made, all that sort of thing. And Boaz goes to the city gate because it's the place of business, because he knows that that's where, if he's going to get this whole kinsman redeemer thing uh, moving forward, if he's going to have a chance to take Ruth as his wife, and he doesn't know whether that'll happen or not, but if he's going to be able to do that, it's got to be done officially. goes back to the idea we talked about last week about Boaz's desire to honor God in everything that he did. That, you remember that statement I made, that honoring God was more important than pleasing himself? And so Boaz goes to the, to the city gates, and you can really again see the providence of God at work here as the closest relative, the one who had the rights to be kinsman redeemer, lo and behold, he just happens to come by as Boaz gets there to sit down. And Boaz says, turn aside, my friend, come on, sit down. And he invites the elders around, you can see he's, 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 dotting his I's and he's crossing his T's. He's making sure that everything done is, a, is official and honoring to God when he does it. Now, it's not really clear at this point why the closest relative has not already begun to initiate the kinsman-redeemer process. We don't, we don't really know. Why hasn't he already started this process? It is possible that he didn't know about the situation But it's unlikely because Boaz has already said a couple of times in here about how everybody has heard about Ruth and how kind she has been to Naomi, to her mother-in-law. Everybody in town's heard about that. So it seems to me it would be unlikely that this closest relative had not heard of it. But in any event, Boaz seems to act as if the guy hasn't heard about it. And so he says, sit down, friend. And he begins to explain to him the situation and begins to explain to him his responsibility in the situation, as the kinsman redeemer. But he also adds to this idea by saying, now, if you're going to redeem it, by all means, redeem it. But if not, let me know, because there's no one but you, meaning it starts with you, you're the closest relative, and after you, it's me. Now, I think that's very significant, because there's a matter of honor here, honor and shame is going on in some of these customs. If the closest relative doesn't redeem this family, it's a shame on him. It's a shame to him and to his household. He has a responsibility under Levitical law to do this. But if someone else, he wasn't, what I'm saying is he's not breaking law if he ends up not doing it if there is someone else. So Boaz is very careful to make sure this man knows. Now, if you're not going to, make sure and let me know because I'm next in line. In other words, Boaz seems to be saying to him, I am more than happy to redeem this, this family. I'm more than happy to marry uh, Ruth. Well, he doesn't tell, her that yet, tell him that yet, but he says, I'm more than happy to do this. After he says this in, um, in verse... Four, uh, it appears that the man is willing to redeem. He says, and he said, I will redeem it. Okay, oh, I'll I'll redeem it. So in verse five, Boaz adds to it. Now, again, I, I I don't have really anything to point to, but it's just interesting to me that Boaz separates the two parts of this. I think there's a strategy in what Boaz is doing here. He's following the law. He wants to honor God, but he also is in love with Ruth. He wants Ruth. 
So in verse 5, I'm paraphrasing, but in verse 5 he says, Oh, um, did I mention that when you redeem the land, you also have to, when, when look at, you can look at how he says it, you to also have to marry Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased. Now that strikes me as funny because I don't know any other kind of widow than a widow of a deceased. But, and, and, and look, folks, again, I'm strictly just reading between the lines, but I think that Boaz is doing everything he can to paint this in as poor a light for this man as he possibly can. Why? Because he loves Ruth. He wants Ruth. But remember what we said last week? It's more important to Boaz to honor God than to please himself. So he's willing if this man wants to redeem, but he wants to make sure this man knows fully what he's getting into. You're marrying a Moabitess. And she's a widow because her husband died. <laughs> so, so in verse 6, suddenly, the closest relative changes his mind. Says, oh, well, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, which he, he, had, he had the ability to do that. He could do that legally. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Now, not really sure exactly all the reasons why this man would say this. It could be that because he knows if he marries Ruth, then everything that he already had is now becomes, you know, comes up under their relationship. It's quite possible that based on what Boaz said to him, the man is simply afraid that if he marries this Moabite woman, he might die without an heir too. Whatever the reason is, he says, oh, I, I, I can't, mm, no, mm, no, <laughs> you marry her. The bottom line is this, the story ends the way everybody wants the story to end, right? Boaz, this older guy, and, and we get that from the text, he's, he's a little bit of an older gentleman. He's probably 40 or something, he's a little bit of an older gentleman. He... <laughs> I remember when I thought 40 was old. Uh, uh, he's a little bit older gentleman. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's probably just resigned himself to the fact that he's just going to be a single guy the rest of his life. This is just his life. But, but Boaz gets the girl. Him and Ruth get together. They conceive. She has a son. Ruth, this, this pagan coming from this pagan land, this foreigner, all this stuff. She, she finds the husband of her dreams, this guy who loves her and cares for her and takes care of her. And Naomi, Naomi, this, this, this woman whose circumstances had been so bad, Naomi, this, this woman who had, who had buried a husband and two sons, who had traveled to a foreign land, who had uh, basically become a beggar, Naomi, who had said to, to the people when she returned, don't you call me Naomi, my name is Mara, I'm bitter, because that's, that's what God has done in my life, God has given me bitterness, my circumstances are bitter, don't you call me Naomi, you call me bitter, Naomi gets redeemed. Naomi uh, gets, gets brought into this wealthy family and she gets to raise up her grandchildren and see a godly heritage begin to grow in her lifetime and her faith in God is restored. What a great story. What a great ending. That's the way it's always supposed to end, right? My wife, Cindy, she's like, uh, we like to go to movies uh, when we can. But Cindy, there's two, two movies that she, that she just can't stand. Musicals and um, any movie that doesn't end perfectly. I mean perfectly. It has to end like the guy in the white hat always has to win. But not just win. He has to get the girl. Not just get the girl. They have to end up on some tropical island in the Caribbean and find a treasure chest full of money there. And I mean, it's, it, all everything has to be perfect. 
We're kind of all that way. We like that. We like it when the story ends well. It's a great story. Fantastic story. Glad to hear it. But so what? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for my life? What do I take away from this story as we're winding up this series today? Well, this is just one thing. But if you can get a hold of this one thing, it could radically change everything in your life. And the one thing is this, ladies and gentlemen. God's perspective is perfect. Now, one of the things that gets my ire up uh, sometimes is some teaching that goes on today uh, in, in pulpits and, and some popular television ministries. Uh, there's a very popular thread of teaching these days that kind of promotes the idea that, uh, that God wants only the very, 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 very best for your physical life right here, right now. In other words, God uh, doesn't want you to be sick. God doesn't want you to be poor. God doesn't want you to drive an old beat-up car. God doesn't want you to, uh, to have bad children. God, God doesn't want badness to come into your life. He wants only the very best for your life today. That's kind of a popular teaching today. And it, and it sounds good. I mean, I, yeah, that, that sounds good. So that's kind of a promoted idea. And, and I, by the way, I'm not bashing on television ministries in general. Television and radio and, and internet are, are fantastic media tools that can be used to spread the message of Jesus. And, and I hope as cross-culture continues uh, to grow that we in, are able to engage more of those uh, media tools uh, to spread the message of Jesus. But what I'm bashing on is this idea that God only ever wants the very best for you. Now listen to me very carefully. I don't want you to leave here with the wrong impression of what I'm saying. God does want the very best for you. But God's perspective of what is the very best for you may be a little different than your perspective or that TV preacher's perspective. You understand what I'm saying? His perspective may be a little different. So this idea that, well, if you're, if you're sick or if you don't have enough money in your checking account or if you don't like your job or if you're not with the person that you want to be with, you need to check that out. You need to find out because that's not God's will for your life. What if I told you, would it shock you if I told you that may be exactly God's will for your life? Now again, listen carefully. I'm not saying that everything that comes into your life is sent by God. Sometimes we make our own poor choices, don't we? That put us in situations or cost us in some ways. Sometimes other people do things to us that, bring, that inflict hurt or pain or suffering into our lives. The sheer fact that we live in a sin-cursed world means that bad stuff is going to happen in this world and nobody is exempt from that. So I'm not saying that everything that comes into your life is, is good. And I'm not saying that everything that comes into your life is from God. But I'm saying that God has a perspective that is big enough to be able to take whatever comes into your life and use it for a good that is greater than you and I can possibly imagine or at least see at this time in our lives. Because most people's perspective is, all, is, is temporal, it's earthly, it's here and now, and God's perspective is always eternal. Right? Most people's perspective, oh, it's, it's what's going on in my life here, now, this is it. Uh, God's perspective is always eternal. 
Now, let me give you a verse of Scripture that many of you are probably familiar with. Many of you have quoted it often, probably, back to other people. I've used it on a number of occasions. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says this, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. Can anybody say amen after that? Amen! I'd say it loud if I were y'all. We know that God works all things to the good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Praise Jesus. Right? Now, some of you have heard me say this before. I'm not saying that that verse is saying that everything is good. But what that verse is saying is that everything that comes into your life, good or bad... Because God's perspective is so much bigger, because God's perspective is eternal, he can take those circumstances and those events from our life and he can use them for ultimate kingdom, eternal good. That would have been a good place to say amen too, but I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Now, can I be honest with you? I have heard bukus of people use this verse. Well, we know that God works all things to good. You know what you know, the Bible says? God works all things to good to those who love him. I've heard bukus of people use this verse. I have known of very few people who actually live this verse. Because when you live this verse, things begin to change. Your perspective begins to change. So, how do we do that? We've got to begin to adapt our perspective to God's perspective. We've got to begin to take on God's perspective in the circumstances of our life, which is why the Apostle Paul is what allowed the Apostle Paul to say this in, uh, I think, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. Yeah, uh, for our present troubles are small. Now, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you probably know a little bit about what this guy had been through. For our present troubles are small. Watch this. And won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last, how long? Come on, say it again. How long? Forever. That's big picture thinking, ladies and gentlemen. That's eternal perspective. How about this one? Colossians chapter 3. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven. What do you call that? Eternal perspective. Where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Why? For you died to this life. Spiritually speaking, you've laid that down. You're a a dead man. You're a dead woman walking. And your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Ladies and gentlemen, you have to choose to change your perspective. If you want to have victory over your circumstances, you have to choose to change your perspective. And if you will do that, listen, can I just say this, and I've got to move on real quickly. If you will do that, I can't promise you that your circumstances will change. But what I can promise you is that you will be able to unload a bucket load full of worry and stress and anxiety and fear in your life. When you begin to take a different perspective on your life and on the circumstances of your life. The circumstance, the event may be awful, it may be terrible, it may be horrific, it may be major, it may be minor, it may be any of those things. That's the reality of the circumstance. But if my perspective says, there. See, then you're not just quoting Romans 8.28, then you're living Romans 8.28. No, God, I, I hate this. Have I told you lately, God, that I hate this? I hate what I'm having to go through. 
But God, I glorify you because I don't know how. I can't see it at all. But I believe that you're going to take this and work it for an eternal good. Oh, and by the way, before we move on, I might as well say this. What if it's for somebody else's eternal good? Can you live with that? That you might have to suffer in order that someone else might have eternal good out of it? I'm just saying that too. Okay. Now, that's the rest of the story, ladies and gentlemen. Real quickly, because I really want to get to this. Let's talk about the best of the story. Now, there's a whole lot I can say about the perspective, and it's, you know, there's a lot to say about it. But, but I've got to get to the best of the story, right? Glad you're all with me. <laughs> All right, let's pick it up in verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Abinadab, and to Abinadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. Wow, there's so much, so much to say in all of this, but... But what we find here at the end of the story, this great story where everything turns out well, what we find is that Ruth and Boaz raise up this incredible godly heritage. Ruth, this Moabitess out of a pagan land who converted to the, to the one true God, to, came to faith in Jehovah God. In the providence of God marries Boaz, who we didn't even talk about this, but Boaz himself was the son of a harlot. The son of a harlot and a pagan woman get together, marry, and raise up the godly heritage that eventually leads to the birth of David. Ruth and Boaz were the great-grandparents of David, one of, one of the, if not the, it might be arguably, one of the greatest kings in the history of Israel. But more important than even that, that heritage, the line of David, eventually led to the birth of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, let me tell you real quickly. Um, when, when David came to the throne, he established Israel as a, as a world power, so to speak. Um, everything was good. And David said, you know what? I've got a nice house. God doesn't have a house. I want to build a house for the Lord. And in response to that, God says this to David through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Moreover, this is, this is God speaking through Nathan. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. Remember, David said, God, I want to build you a house. No, David, I'm going to make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, Solomon. He shall build a house for my name. He's the one that's going to get to build the temple. Watch this. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom, hence your kingdom, David, because you'll pass it to him. I will establish his kingdom forever. This is what is known today, ladies and gentlemen, as the Davidic covenant. The promise that God made to David that that there would always be a 
person from his line, from his lineage, who would sit on the throne of David forever. In other words, an eternal kingdom established. And from Boaz and Ruth to Obed to Jesse to David to Solomon to right on down all the way to Jesus Christ. What a fantastic heritage. Contained within this story, real quickly, is, is that, remember a couple weeks ago we talked about that overarching story of the Bible? That meta-narrative that within all the books and all the stories and all the teachings and all that stuff, that there's this overarching story and that overarching story is that God loves us and that he has sent his son to redeem us from our own sins so that we might uh, have life with him. God has become our kinsman redeemer. Let me explain to you what I mean. There there are a few things that, that were requirements for a person to be a kinsman redeemer. First off, to be the redeemer of someone, you had to be, as we've already discussed, a relative, a close relative. You had to become one of them. According to Levitic, Leviticus 1, 25, 25, you had to be one of them. So what does God do? He becomes one of us. Hebrews chapter 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's you and me, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death... He might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Oh, come on. Amen! That's a good one, God! Man! What did he do? He became flesh. Because we were flesh. Okay, that's pretty exciting. (laughs) That's exciting. He became one of us. The kinsman redeemer had to be a relative, a closely connected. The kinsman redeemer, secondly, also, had to be able to pay the price. If the kinsman redeemer is no better off than the the person he's trying to redeem, then he can't really do it. No, the one who pays this price, whatever the price is for the land, whatever the price is for the family, the kinsman redeemer has to be able to pay the price. Ladies and gentlemen, there is only one person in the history of the world who has ever been able to pay the price to redeem you and me. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, look at uh, uh, Psalm uh, 49, I think it is. Uh, the psalmist is saying, why should I fear when trouble comes, when enemies surround me? Now watch this. This is, this is, this is mankind. They trust in their wealth and boast of great riches, yet they cannot, say that word with me, redeem. They cannot redeem themselves from death. By paying a ransom to God, they can't do that. Redemption does not come so easily. For no one can ever pay enough to live forever and never see the grave. Can't do it. Don't have it. Uh, The New Testament picks up on this idea as well, by the way. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our, what? Say it. Freedom with the blood of his son, and forgave our sins. Yeah, come on, that's better. We're going to have church up in here today before we go home, and we're not going home. <laughs> I don't, I don't. All right, let's, let's look at this. Look, look, look at this, Titus chapter 2. Titus is talking to, 
to, Paul's talking about the return of Christ, what a great time that's going to be. He says, looking for the blessed hope of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Watch this. Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to, say it, redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people of his own possessions, zealous for good deeds. He did that. He redeemed. He purchased. Oh, you want another one? Thank you. I'm glad y'all said yes. Because I'm going to Hebrews chapter 9. Watch this. And not through the blood of goats and calves. This is not about you, some religious work or some sacrifice. No, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having attained eternal what? Redemption. How about one more? 1 Peter chapter 1. Knowing that you are not, What? Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Peter, it comes full circle. Peter says the same thing that Psalmist was saying in Psalm 49. All the money in the world, all the riches in the world, all the fame in the world, all the, all the religious acts in the world could never pay one iota of the debt that you owed. Someone's going to have to come alongside and redeem you that can afford to pay the price. Which is the third requirement for a kinsman redeemer, ladies and gentlemen. He had to be willing to pay the price. Ruth and Naomi's kinsman was unwilling to be kinsman redeemer. The price was too high for him to pay. God said, there is no price I will not pay for you. Maybe you've heard of this little verse. Maybe you'd want to say it with me. John chapter 3 verse 16. Come on. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Hallelujah. What a Savior. How about this? Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then one more, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. This is real love. Oh, not that we loved God. No, we were enemies. We were sinners. Seeking our own way. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Ladies and gentlemen, the rest of the story is important, but the best of the story is the most important. Because the best of the story is this. The meta-narrative, the big story from the Word of God down through the ages to all of us is this. Our God, our Creator, is also our kinsman, Redeemer. He is the one who has redeemed us. It is a great story. And I said earlier that it ends so well for Boaz and for Ruth and for Naomi. But the great news is, ladies and gentlemen, when we, like Ruth, when we go to the feet of Jesus, spiritually speaking, and we ask Him to place His righteous covering over us, And we say to him, I want you, I choose you, I need you to be my kinsman redeemer. When we do that, ladies and gentlemen, it ends well, exceedingly well for anyone. And we become a part of the legacy. 
we become part of this, this, this righteous line that's extended down through the ages and it continues to be a growing legacy as we find other people to say, listen to me, my God is also my Savior. He's my Redeemer. And all I can say to that is, hallelujah. What a Savior. Thanks, Pastor. What a great story that reminds us of God's perspective and God's love. Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer. His sacrifice made it possible for us to be forgiven. Be sure to join us next week as Pastor Clay starts a new teaching series in the book of Philippians entitled Heartbeat, To Live is Christ, To Die is Gain. I'm Rick Freeman. Thanks for being with us. We'll look for you again next week. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.